You find people who you can argue with. It's not about ownership. It's about wanting to find the truth. And no one will surrender as long as they believe they're right, but they're not in it to be right. They're in it to find something. And everybody respects everybody, and you arrive at exciting things. That's playwright and 2012 National Medal of Arts recipient Tony Kushner talking about the art of collaboration. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. This is the second of a two-part interview with the award-winning writer Tony Kushner. We spoke in a noisy D.C. hotel room when he was in town to receive his National Medal of Arts Award from President Barack Obama. Last week, we discussed his early experiences with theater and the writing of his game-changing play, Angels in America. This week, we turn our attention to his current work in theater, his screenplay for the film Lincoln, and his politics. Tony Kushner has been at the center of the gay rights movement and is a self-proclaimed man of the left. But although he's a deeply political thinker and his work often engages with politics, he is not polemical. On the contrary, much of his creative power is derived from the fact that his choices are artistic, not political, and that his complex characters are far from stock figures. Take Gus Marcantonio, for example, who's at the center of Kushner's recent play, the Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with the Key to the Scriptures. Gus is a former longshoreman, a labor activist, and a communist, who's decided to commit suicide. After one failed attempt, he's gathered his children together to get their support for his plan to end his life. I shouldn't have cut my wrists on your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> In my head, it was your mother's. Yeah, well, anniversary. Because it's unfortunate, but she died on your birthday. So. So, you thought you'd give him a matching set? <laughs> she died giving birth, anyway, not on. It's the same. No, I mean, you make it sound like she, you know, baked a cake and then toppled over. <laughs> but, but so this time, so I decided this time after your birthday. Not on. <laughs> I waited. The play has Kushner's trademark humor, but it's also an examination of the Communist Party, the labor movement, and trade unionism. As in much of Kushner's work, historical allusions are front and center, most obviously in Gus Marcantonio's name, which is a reference to a left-wing congressman of the 1930s and 40s, Vito Marcantonio. In the play, he's, he's Vito Marcantonio's uh, younger cousin, and his part of his uh, early days of political involvement were working for Vito Marcantonio in one of his six campaigns for the House. And, uh, you know, Vito Marcantonio, who was a six-term congressman from East Harlem, was never a member of the Communist Party, but largely towed the party line. He was a pretty great person. And there were a number of things that I wanted to deal with in the play. One of them was that there's so much in our culture about Italian-American criminality, the mafia and the mob, and this is what you mostly get to see 
And there's a whole part of the Italian-American early experience, the immigrant experience, the immigrant generations of, of Italian-Americans that, that have to do with political radicalism and political involvement. People, everybody knows who the godfather was, but how many people now remember Sacco and Vanzetti and the Italian-Americans who were essential in the early years in trade unionism and people like uh, Vito Marcantonio. There's, a, there's a, a radicalism that came right from Italy to the United States that was a very different form of left thinking that was enormously important in shaping um, American political thought. And I wanted to deal with a family of really tough, really smart Italian-American political people. And uh, I was fascinated. I had no idea that there had been this guy that East Harlem had sent back over and over and over again. And, you know, and in many ways, I think he was an immensely admirable uh, man. It's, it's quite topical. It continues the conversation, this great discussion about the place of unions in the United States and, and how that's playing out. And I'm sure that was a discussion you wanted to participate in. Yeah, well, I mean, I started, when I started thinking about the play, I've always been completely pro-union. And uh, I, I absolutely believe in labor unions. And um, I was beginning to work on the play when uh, the stagehands, Local One, of the Teamsters, went on strike on Broadway. And I went to a couple of meetings of, like, the Dramatists Guild, expecting to find everyone kind of ready to go out, you know, on strike. I mean, the Dramatists Guild is not a union because we own our own copyrights, so we can't uh, unionize. But I expected everyone in the theater to kind of be ready to go out on strike with the stagehands. And I was sort of shocked at how the conversations really reflected the 30-plus years of Reaganite thinking about labor unions, that these guys were, you know, stealing our money, and they were expecting to be paid even when they weren't needed. It's horrifying that you have to pay somebody to, to sit. If, if you only need three stagehands, why do you have to pay the other two guys? Why can't they, you know, go away? The short-sightedness of it, the injustice of it, hearing people who were, you know, good liberals say things like, you know, these guys have make $150,000 a year and now their kids go to college and they have a college fund that's bigger than the Actors' Equity Fund. And it's like, great. I mean, isn't that the point that a stagehand makes $150,000? They can live in Great Neck or whatever and they can send their kids to college? What, do, do you need them to be impaupered to make, you know, the world seem right to you? And, and if you fire stagehands every time you need a small crew, then what happens when you need a big crew? Do you really want to like hire some guy off the street who's never been backstage to be hanging out with your cast and moving your scenery around? It's a skill. Your heavy scenery. Yeah, your heavy scenery, and you know, and it's a skill, and it's a it's a talent, and you don't throw people out. You know, as Willie Loman says, a man is not a piece of fruit. You 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 know, eat peel off the rind. It's it's. Uh, I thought you know, God, these were these were principles of. Uh, economic justice that this country really learned the hard way in the Great Depression and in the New Deal and in the Wagner Act and the, the, the building of labor unions in this country before World War II, and we've forgotten so much of it. So I wanted to, you know, start talking about that. I think we're relearning it now. I think there are many instances where you start to see people beginning to understand with the struggle over public employees uh, unionizing and so on that that unions are a good thing, and a country that doesn't support labor unions is uh, a country that's going to have horrendous income disparity, and a horrendous income disparity is the greatest single indicator of human unhappiness 
around the world is a country with that's uh, too polarized in terms of wealth and poverty. You had been editing Arthur Miller's work for still you still are for Library of America, and you think about longshoremen on stage, you think about a view from the bridge. And I was just wondering if part of what you were doing in that play was continuing a conversation with Arthur Miller. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I, I just turned, when I started working on, uh, we call it IHO for short, I had just turned 50 a couple of years before, and so I was feeling very middle-aged and thinking, you know, I'm an American playwright, and I've never written a kitchen sink drama. And I had been spending all this time reading Arthur's work, and I'd known him a little bit. I spoke at his funeral, and and I admired him immensely. I read his uh, magnificent autobiography, Time Bends, which I think is as great as any of his plays, which is to say very, very great. And I think about O'Neill and thinking about Tennessee and and that that thing, you know, whenever you get interviewed as a playwright, uh, if you write plays that are seen as political, people will always say, you know, why don't Americans ever write political plays? Why are they always kitchen? Well, it would be fun to kind of write a play in a living room and see what that was like. And for the most part, IHO takes place in one building, and a lot of it takes place in a living room. And I think, and Gus, the main character, is modeled after the great post-war monster protagonists. I mean, you think about the guys, the James Tyrone, Willie Loman, you know, Stanley Kowalski. I mean, these, you know, these very difficult men who are also very admirable and powerful and moving and magnetic. And uh, so I think I wanted to do one of those guys. And uh, I, had a, I had a great deal of fun. I'm still working on the play. You know, it strikes me that a play in some ways has it has two lives. There's what you write, the play, and then there's the production. And it's different. And is it hard for you as the person who birthed this play not to jump in? Or do you ha- you jump in? Oh, I do. You, jump you're in. a jumper. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, American theater practice is, is so afflicted by the lack of money. We don't rehearse anything long enough. I mean, any, any play of two or three hours long should literally be in rehearsal for two or three months, and we rehearse it for six weeks. Then we sell tickets to previews, but previews are actually rehearsals that people are paying money for because the theaters can't afford to keep rehearsing. And then we sell tickets to the performances, which are actually rehearsals. By the end of the run, maybe you're starting to see what the thing might be. I just think it takes much longer to discover these worlds than we give ourselves time to do. And that makes the relationship between the playwright and the director very, very difficult because there's no time built into the process for the playwright's necessary involvement and then necessary withdrawal. There's absolutely a point, unless the playwright is directing the work, where you should go away. You have too much, I mean, John Lahr said it about Beckett directing his own work, he said he had too much authority. You know, you know too much, and you kind of kill spontaneity and invention and discovery. But you do know a lot at the beginning, and there's a great deal that you can impart at the beginning, but there's just not enough time. So it's a really tricky, difficult thing, and I've never found an answer to it. It's I mean, but it's also part of the fun of theater. I just worked on the new edition of Angels following these rewrites, 
And uh, I realized that when I was reading the book, the published script, which has done really, really well as a kind of a reading thing, that I, when I was younger, I put in very, very few stage directions. I kind of liked the idea that people would have to figure it out. And over the years, I've seen the same mistakes being made over and over. So I started putting in more stage directions, but that kind of slows up the reading process. You want the experience of reading a play to, to, to some degree contain some of the excitement of watching something on stage, the pacing and the rhythm of it. If you put in too many, you know, I mean, O'Neill is our greatest playwright and I revere him, but those stage directions are, you know, John is four foot seven and he has a carbuncle on his nose and, you know, red hair and it's, it's like, okay, but what if I can't find somebody that looks like that? Can I cast, you know, Christopher Plummer? I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous. And, and, and you know when you're reading stage directions somehow that that's not the meat of the matter. So you kind of want to, I mean, in a couple of his plays like Huey, it really is, but mostly it's like, oh, go away and let me just read the dialogue and find it, you know. Like Shakespeare. Well, like Shakespeare, who has no, yes, exactly. Who has, exit. You know, exit for, exit for by bears, you know, that, that's the one. That's my favorite. <laughs> yes. My father, when he was dying last, uh, two years ago, I said, like two days before he died, I, I went up and I said, how are you feeling um, in the morning when I had just woken up? And he said, exit pursued by bear. But that's the fun thing, is that you're writing something that isn't ever completely at home in any place, and it has this kind of wonderful ambiguity and ambivalence, amphibiousness almost. I mean, when you go to see Hamlet, no matter how great the production, things are flying past you and you just, if you're paying any attention, you think, oh my God, I've got to go home and read this because I'm getting about a tenth of it. And every time you sit down and read Hamlet, because of it's Shakespeare, the theatricality just comes wafting up at you, and you think, oh, I wish I was seeing this on stage, or you're putting it on in the little stage in your head. So you're never in one place or the other, and I think that that's part of the joy of the form, is dealing with that, um, strategizing and working with that complexity. You know, you're writing a text that's both a score for a kinetic event, but it's also a book for a reader. And, uh, you know, the greatest playwright that ever lived is also the greatest writer that ever lived, the greatest poet that ever lived. So, you know, those 38 plays or whatever they say there are now, 39 or I don't know, I've lost count. But the, the canon, uh, the Shakespeare canon, is probably, you know, next to the King James Bible, Koran, Torah, I mean, a couple of other books, one of the great indispensables in the, in the world. And it's a book of plays, mostly, the sonnets, but... I want to talk about film. Very briefly, you wrote the screenplay for Angels in America. How different writing for film than writing for stage? Well, it's a, I mean, it's a completely different form in a lot of ways. In some ways, it's similar. You write dialogue, and you have to be good at that. And I find that it's very helpful to know how to construct a scene, <laughs> you know, that it's only a scene as long as there's an active conflict. And as soon as the conflict is resolved in one way or another, the scene is done and you have to stop it. And you know, to write a scene that actors can sort of feel supported by is, a, is something that you, get, you train yourself in as a playwright. And I'm sure screenwriters, some screenwriters do the same thing. But I think that the forms are so radically different in, in so many ways. I mean, in one way, as Marx would tell you, you know, uh, property relationships are everything. 
uh, or certainly have an effect on everything. And I used to say this before I wrote my first screenplay, and it turned out to be true. You don't own your words when you write a screenplay. You sell them to someone else. And the lack of ownership changes your relationship to the words. It's also not a writer's medium. I mean, the theater isn't either, but the play is the only thing that will survive when the production goes away. And the play is the thing that's there before anybody else gets there. It's the thing that's in the room when these strangers come together to try to put a world together. So the play, and the tradition of the theater, of course, is that the play's the thing. And the law of the United States of America is, I own the copyright to this thing. If you, you know, it's like you've moved into my apartment. I'm your landlord. <laughs> if you do things to the walls that I don't like, you're out. I have never done this, nobody does this anymore, but if I discovered a production that, I mean, that made significant changes to the text of a play that I'd written, I have the right to pull the rights to it. I own it. So that makes the playwright have a power, a contractually uh, guaranteed power, um, that has an effect. And uh, not only do you lose that power in film, but also, this is a cliche, but it's really true, at least in my experience, it really is a director's medium, and you discover that. I mean, the, the screenplay is not the thing. <laughs> the film is the thing. The screenplay is a suggestion of many suggestions about what the film might be, but it's going to both contribute mightily to the final product and also be subject to the edit processes of the editing room and also the processes of filming. I mean, one thing that I discovered on the very first day of filming Angels, you have a scene, they film it, and it's gone, it's done. I mean, you can always tell yourself in a lousy production of a play, well, the next time we'll get it right. I shouldn't have cast this actor. The next time I'll get somebody who can play the part. There's no next time with the film. I mean, nobody's ever going to refilm the screenplay for Munich or Lincoln. I don't want them to. I'm very happy with the way they turned out. But you have this feeling. I've discovered now that actors and directors feel the same way. Every night when you get back from the set, you lie in bed thinking, why didn't we do this? Why didn't I write this? Why? Because it's done. It's gone. It's over. It's a finished thing. And all that ambiguity and ambivalence that I was talking about with the play, uh, the film is a commodity form. It winds up on a DVD or you know, streaming as a, as a file of bits, but it, it's, a, it's a finished thing and it won't change. It's one reason why it's so much easier to watch films than to watch plays because you can hate them freely if you're hating them and you know that they're gonna be the same now as they will be 70 years from now or if they're old as they were 70 years ago, they don't alter and and you don't have to work to make them happen you turn on the machine and they go like a novel does a play needs you and makes you do work and enlists you in the joy of it when it's great which is one of the reasons why it's so much fun and also enlists you in the agony of watching it flop which is no fun at all it's the worst experience so it's you know it's the difference between engaging with a commodity form ultimately and something that's alive and not controllable and not reproducible exactly from night to night. Um, and it, you know, you're just you're working with the, all of those things. I learned working on Angels that stage writing, I think, is a little bit heated up to compensate for the cooling distance of however many feet between the edge of the stage and the first row of seats or the last row of seats. That people are not seeing close-ups, so you have to make everything a little bit more charged and electric 
to kind of you know reach out and pull them in. The minute you put that writing on a camera and the camera's like two inches from somebody's face and they're talking that way, it's too much. It becomes too hot. And you have to kind of cool it down a little bit. I think it needs, a slight, for most of it, a slightly cooler, um, I mean, a, a little will go a longer way in a certain sense. But I love it. I, I love working. And, I mean, I've worked with Mike Nichols and Steven Spielberg. And I've, I'm working on a film for Mike right now and a new film for Steven. And, you know, there are people, you, you find every once in a while a collaborator. Oscar Eustace was one, Janine Tesori, who I wrote Carolina Changed the Musical with. We're working on an opera together. You find people who you can argue with. It's not about ownership. It's about wanting to find the truth. And no one will surrender as long as they believe they're right, but they're not in it to be right. They're in it to find something, and everybody respects everybody, and you arrive at exciting things. And I, I feel like I've been immensely lucky that my only three experiences as a screenwriter have been with two guys I admire immensely as artists and who treat writers, and certainly treated me and treat me as a colleague, and, and they're collaborators, and so that's thrilling. And I really enjoy it. I mean, and I, I just think, you know, I love movies. I love television. It, I love watching it, so it's fun to have made a few. Now, with Lincoln, you had to have done a lot of research. Wasn't that years for you? It took seven years from start to finish for me. Was it hard to stop researching and get writing? I'm still researching. I can't stop reading about Lincoln. It's terrible. I, I mean, I'm now working on three or four other things that have nothing to do with Abraham Lincoln. And in some ways, I'm relieved. But in other ways, I'm like, I, I knew this would happen if I went into this, that I've become one of those Lincoln obsessives. You, you just fall so deeply in love with him. And the material is so absolutely central to the heart of the human experience, the democratic, our national experience. I mean, the Civil War is the, the navel within N-A-V-E-L. I mean, it's, it's the thing from which everything, everything goes into it and everything comes out of it. It's, and I just think that the issues that he contended with, the ways that he contended with them, the things that he wrote are absolutely uh, essential. And it's a, it's a great way to, it's like Shakespeare. You know, it's a, it's a way of studying um, humanity. Euclid's first common notion is this. Things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. That's a rule of mathematical reasoning. It's true because it works. Has done and always will do. In his book, hmm, Euclid says this is self-evident. You see, there it is. Even in that 2,000-year-old book of mechanical law, it is a self-evident truth that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. But I'm not going to ever write about him again, I don't think, or at least not, certainly not in dramatic form. So I need to kind of put him away. I needed to know a lot before I could start believing that I had a right to write about him. You know, you, you have to get to a point, and you've become sensitive to what that point is in yourself, when you sort of begin to believe yourself, and you're not just making stuff up, you're actually talking with a certain kind of rich knowledge. 
problem is that you're a dilettante, and of course it's going to evaporate fairly quickly. Yeah. Okay, National Medal of Arts. Okay. How did you find out? Uh, Rocco Landisman called me. Oh, you heard from Rocco? Yes, he called me, if, I guess, two months ago or something when they were calling people, and he had asked to be able to call me. I was uh, absolutely and completely blown away. I mean, just, I was walking... I just finished actually having lunch with Oscar, and I was walking down the street, and the phone rang, and it was him. And um, I'm still kind of stunned. I'm waiting for somebody to say, oh, we've made a mistake. <laughs> we didn't mean you. We meant the British Holocaust historian named Tony Kushner, who's written all those wonderful books. So I, you know, I'm so um, happy about it, and so happy to be receiving it from this president, who I admire so enormously and who I think has done such um, astonishing service to the country and the world. And uh, we got to show the movie to him in last November and have dinner with him. And, and I'm glad that I get to see him again. So it makes this really um, an amazing... It's like being doubly blessed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, many congratulations. Oh, well, thanks so much. It's really fun talking to you. I really enjoy talking to you, too. Thanks. That was Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and 2012 National Medal of Arts recipient, Tony Kushner. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to Kyle Warren, Jennifer Kreisman, and the Public Theater. Excerpt from Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Tony Kushner. Excerpt from The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with the Key to the Scriptures. Directed by Michael Greif. Written by Tony Kushner. Presented by the Public Theater and the Signature Theater Company. Excerpt from Opening Credits by Johnny Ripper. From the CD, a soundtrack for a film that doesn't exist. Used courtesy of Creative Commons and found on WFMU's Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, it's a visit to the Galax Fiddle Convention. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.